back to another episode of AST. Today is just me, Maddie B, and I'm going to go ahead and get straight into it. This episode is a prequel of how AST was created. I felt that the podcast has been missing something up until this point, and this is it. This is the real raw story behind Adapt, Survive, Thrive. For those of you that don't know, AST was built on the backstory of a kid who told himself lies his entire life. He got expelled from school, he suffered drug addiction to opiates, pain meds, and pretty much everything else. Continuously ran away from his problems and overall lived in what he later realized was an artificial reality created through his own chaotic and self-destructive decisions that were continuously enabled until one day they weren't anymore. For better or worse, this kid learned to adapt to the chaos, which allowed him to survive through several situations in life that he probably shouldn't have, and that's with no exaggeration. The chaos continued for years and years. It seemed wherever he tried to escape, the chaos followed. Nothing seemed to change that. Beginning to live a lie in first grade was the beginning, but it was far from the end. Chasing money by any means necessary didn't solve the feeling of financial insecurity. Partying women and drugs were a solution at first, and then just made the problems bigger. Running away and moving 9,000 miles to the furthest place on the planet didn't solve it either. Transferring to a private school and graduating from college didn't solve any of the fucking problems either. That's because wherever he went, there he was. And eventually, certain realizations were made. The chaos, which was all fun and games, was now his reality and it was stuck in it with no way out and was no longer fun and games. Surviving through the chaos was his only option. Every day became less and less enjoyable. The chaos was deteriorating his mind and body. During the passing of each day, he couldn't help but contemplate if there will ever be a day where he could return to a normal life again. Towards the end of his life in this chaos with no consequences, he began to realize that this would only end in one of two ways. Option one was jail. Option two was die. Luckily for him, it was option one. This was the catalyst that finally helped him break his false reality. The consequences were there, and he was willing to face any necessary repercussions for his actions for the first time ever. This was his wake-up call, and he knew if he was given a second chance, he wasn't going to waste it. It was finally time to make a change, and this change is where the cycle, the next cycle, of adapting, surviving, and thriving began. If you didn't put two and two together, hello everyone, Matty B, and I'm the kid from the story, and this episode is going to be me diving into the chaos and sharing my story of how I adapted and survived during this time. If you make it to the end of this podcast, I have a little surprise for you, so I hope you find it entertaining enough to make it to the end. 
the very, very beginning, a little bit of a backstory is I grew up with a single mom who always worked. My parents were divorced when I was about one, so I didn't really know any different. And at the time, I was living with my grandparents, with my mother, in their basement, and my mom just got into the mortgage industry, from my recollection, and was working a ton, you know, trying to make up for lost time because a lot of things happened in her and my dad's relationship, and money was instilled with high importance when I was a kid as I was just simply not sheltered from adult conversations, you know, it was just me and my mom, even after she got her feet back on the ground after the, after the divorce and we moved out of there and, 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 and lived together. But when you're young and you're exposed to those type of conversations and at one point my mother lost everything you know, money became high importance and it, and it was looked at as a position of power. Uh, and, it, and, and that is true to a certain extent. However, later, a long, long time later, I realized that knowledge, skills, and habits are the real important assets, not necessarily money, even though those three things are, are used to make money, but it goes to the fundamentals that are important, and those are the real intangible assets. So in first grade, I was held back, and then I repeated first grade in a, at a school in the same school district. And the survival skill of perception as reality was learned really quickly. There was only one person that I was friends with in my neighborhood, which at the time was kind of in bumfuck nowhere. And so there wasn't a whole lot of neighbors. And so there was only one of them that I knew and was friends with. And he didn't tell anybody. So, so that lie that I told myself and everyone else became my reality and, and everyone's perception was only what they knew, which, which is why that survival skill of perception is reality holds true. What I didn't realize at the time is I was so young that that skill was learned without me knowing it. And I used that skill for a long, long time in a lot of other circumstances. And I don't exactly know why I did it or, or really why I was even held back. It was for math. And ironically, I'd consider myself pretty fucking good at math today. Um, but that was the first time that I was forced to adapt. And the path that I chose was to lie and create a perception so others would basically have a certain opinion of me. And I was afraid of being judged for being held back in first grade because it just seemed really fucking silly at the time. And so we'll fast forward to middle school and it, I was kicked out of middle school in eighth grade. And it, it was definitely f for my own bad decisions. 
I felt like I was treated unfairly as, as many other people weren't expelled in that scenario. But I was forced to go to a different school and I didn't have a way to get there. And the only way to get there was actually being driven by the assistant principal who just happened to be driving by my house on the way to school every day. That assistant principal was also the disciplinary person. So there was some talks and, and she agreed to it, provided that I stayed out of trouble and, and it didn't cause problems in her life. And so I went to that school and I had to learn how to adapt to a new school district. This, this school was far different, uh, way more lax, way different structure, and I met a lot of new acquaintances. And the reason why I call them acquaintances is because at that point I had already put up defense mechanisms and walls so I didn't get too close or attached to anybody because I didn't have any plans on staying there, right? This was just something I had to do, and I was going to figure it out, jump through the hoops, and, and go back to my normal life. Uh, you know, I had to finish the last three months of eighth grade, and then you get to go to high school. What I didn't know at the time is that I was actually expelled for a full year, so that meant that I was not going to be allowed to attend my high school until, until the third trimester. You know, fortunately, Andover High School was built, which was a brand new school. And I went in front of the school board. My mom hired a lawyer. They obviously just simply didn't give a shit about my lawyer because this is not a courtroom. It's a school board hearing. And so this was the first time where I'm like, all right, you know, money is not going to solve this problem. And, and I just went up to the school board and was honest with them and apologized and owned my mistakes. And they decided to let me back in at, at the first school day. And so I went to Andover High School. It was brand new. And that experience was, again, having to come back with everybody knowing my story and having a certain reputation to live up to, which, you know, was kind of like not the bad kid, but for some reason I just gravitated towards that reputation, hung on to it and, and, and then exemplified that throughout my high school career. And, and Andover was a brand new school. There was no seniors, so there was no tradition. There was no uh, sports that we were competitive in. And so a lot of people decided to leave the school. And it, our freshman class was 450 people. The junior and sophomore class were like 50 and 75. So although it was a phenomenal experience and we kind of ran the show in high school, there wasn't really a tradition of seniority. And so we, we ran around and did whatever we wanted at that new school. And throughout that, it was just partying, having fun. You know, I had the financial means to do whatever I want because I was subsidized from my mother and overall it was a relatively wealthier pocket inside of Anoka County. We were, we were oftentimes compared as the Edina of Anoka County, which was funny because 
our little place wasn't even really well off. It's just that we thought we were. And so I just thought, man, we're, we're, we're the king of the world over here. And this is a breeze. Because I never cheated in high school. I saw a bunch of other people cheat. I, I ended up just like skating by. I had to get a tutor for math. And so I, I don't think I'd really applied myself you know, just like I was held back in first grade for math, I still had problems in math. And I just think it was because I didn't know what the fuck I was going to use any of this information for. But I like knew you had to do it. So eventually, the last semester of my high school career, I finally took the math class that I'd been avoiding and did it, got a tutor and passed. Which leads me into applying for college. And I definitely would not have completed that without my mom's help. I mean, she basically held my hand through the entire process. And at this point, I just assumed my mom was going to pay for school, right? Like, no one in my immediate family had gone to school. I think my uncle uh, graduated from college. But it was just really important to my mom. You know, she ended up making good money throughout this, uh, you know, basically 15 years since we moved out of my grandparents' house. And so that was just the autopilot thing that I was going to do. And I just, like, expected that, you know, you just jump through the hoops and you get there, right? And I was just always doing whatever I needed to do to get to the next step. It wasn't overachieving by any means. The effort was not anything to brag about. And it was ultimately pretty easy, but I just did not connect any of the dots on what I was doing. It was just like, hey, you got a bunch of shit you're expected to do. This is the path that everyone should do. Why don't you do it? Sure. Fuck it. I'll go ahead and do it. And it wasn't that I didn't want to go to college. It's just that I didn't really understand what I was going to college for. And uh, so I ended up getting in to St. Cloud State which I always knew I was going to graduate with a four-year real estate degree. It was the only four-year degree that matched my aspirations, which I was just going to go into real estate, right? My family had been in it in one form or fashion. I had worked at a construction company for my entire high school career until one day I got fired, and rightfully so, because I was partying, slept in, and, and, and just didn't show up. And... and you know, my boss, who was my mother's friend at the time, I called in. He's like, hey, don't come back into work. Food for thought. This shit is not acceptable. You're, you're an adult. You're 18 years old. Have a nice life. Goodbye. And feedback from other people was, man, don't worry about it. He's just being a dick. It happens. And so a lot of these conversations, like, basically made me think that a lot of this shit wasn't my fault when in reality it a hundred percent was and so the reason I went to St. Cloud State was because St. Thomas and St. Cloud were the only two schools in Minnesota that offered my major and the only reason I was doing that was because oh cool you get a certificate as a backup plan otherwise like common sense would have just said I would roll right into the industry I would already had connections there was really no reason to take out a bunch of student debt or have my mom pay for that. But really, I think my mom did not want me to travel the same path as she did because it was it was very, very difficult. I didn't see her a lot growing up. I was pretty much raised by uh, coaches, friends, parents. 
And I did have, you know, some, some stepdads along the way, but you know, the same defense mechanism of not getting too close, I still kept with me the entire time. And really looking back at it, that's because I was, I was afraid of being abandoned again, right? Like it was just part of my story from my dad to, you know, the next stepdad named Lyle and then, and then even Jesse, it all resulted in like the same thing. And so the easiest way to not to protect yourself against that is just simply not get too close. Well, the shitty part about that is you don't actually really develop a lot of relationships and, and learn to deal with losing those relationships because really that's just a part of life and it's okay. But I didn't know that, didn't want to accept it and, 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 and thought a lot of it was my fault, even though I had to figure out way later that that just wasn't the case. And so St. Cloud was the right option anyways. I knew a bunch of people from high school going there, and it was a party school. So that was where I was headed. And, you know, I couldn't even get into St. Cloud. I had to go to a connection program through a community college. But they had some sort of relationship. So you could go experience the university campus your freshman year. And I hit the ground running, playing the game of getting a piece of paper, making money on college campus along the way, and everything was still fun in games. Um, it wasn't too hard. You know, I always knew that if I applied myself, I could figure it out. It's just I only applied myself with enough effort to get me to just the next thing. It wasn't like I was trying to reverse engineer anything in the far distant future to like get to where I actually wanted to go. It was just one foot in front of the other. Let's just keep going on autopilot. And within the first couple of months, I ended up getting into a fight outside of the dorms and getting kicked out of the dorms and put in, put on academic, I'm sorry, behavioral suspension, not academic suspension. And looking back at it, I don't regret doing what I did outside of there. I was defending my girlfriend and, you know, college campuses can be a dangerous place for women. So I was definitely overprotective. And, it, you know, once again, a lot of people reinforced what I did. So I didn't think it was wrong. And I ended up getting out of those consequences because, you know, the kid that I happened to get into it with, there was actually four of them. It's just that I only got into it with one of them. And then that scared the rest of them off. He didn't show up to court. And so, you know, that was a done deal. It was dismissed and I moved on. Getting kicked out of the dorms, though, enhanced my freedom to run around, have fun and make money on campus. Now I didn't have to live on campus and there's a lot less supervision, let's say. And so, you know, my mom, of course, got in the middle of everything, trying to solve issues and, and just make my life easier. Which, of course, the common sense thing is just to buy a brand new house for your 19 year old in college. And so she did that. And then I had a couple of roommates live with me to subsidize rent. And 
that only lasted literally like six weeks before I got into some major trouble that I was not going to be able to get out of as easily as all the shit I'd been able to skate out of before. And so, like I said, there's a lot of things you can do to make money in college on campus. And I was doing those activities and all that quickly came to an end when I ended up in Beltrami County Jail facing some pretty serious charges that could have landed me years in prison. You know, ironically, the charges I received were for something that's now legal in 11 states and medically allowed in 47 states and has been, you know, pretty much socially acceptable. But keep in mind, this was over a decade ago. I turned 33 yesterday, so I was 19. This was a long time ago. And then the other truth of the matter was there was some stuff on that list of charges that just should never be allowed and was, was, was a real problem and, and deserved consequences. And, you know, along the way of doing all this shit, you don't realize who else you're hurting and who else is impacted. But, of course, everybody that cares about you is. And I was arrested the day before Valentine's Day, and I told my girlfriend, hey, if I don't come back from Bemidji, you know, call my mom and let her know what happened. Well, my girlfriend couldn't make that phone call because that's a tough phone call to make. And then on top of it, her dad came and picked her up for the weekend because she didn't have a car because she lived a more normal life that wasn't subsidized to the extent by her parents and that's a lot of people's story like you don't need a car on college campus matter of fact it's just easier to get in trouble with one well that put her in a shitty spot because you know she had to lie to her dad on where I was and that whole story of our relationship could be an entirely another podcast But some of those things are not for me to divulge. So if you've ever been down this road or know anybody that's down this road, what you do after you get arrested, especially for drugs, is you go to treatment because that's just what you do, right? That's how you get out of consequences because you're already doing the right things to straighten out your life. And... It's pretty much well known that imprisoning or putting people in lockup that have drug problems and just problems like that doesn't really net society any benefit. You, you need to help them recover. And so oftentimes if you get a lawyer and you have money for a lawyer, they'll recommend you go to treatment. So that's what I did. And, and long story short, I ended up getting out of that with pretty minimal consequences. Um, the, 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 the charges were eventually dropped after a long period of time where you don't get in trouble anymore. And, and if you don't get in trouble for a certain duration, it's called a deferred sentence. And that's just what I agreed to because it was easy. And at that point, if you go further, it starts to cost a lot of money for a lawyer. And so I was willing to accept that. No problem. It was a sweet deal. I even got my car back that they impounded for no money because I didn't, I wasn't guilty technically. 
And that scared me straight for a good little while. But I was still involved with all the same people, the same crowd. And, and just being around that is, is a recipe for disaster. And of course, you know, it pulled me back in pretty quickly. Now, you know, keep in mind that these type of things take a long time. So I didn't even go to court and solve this issue until after I had already got back into the shitty lifestyle that I had been accustomed to and got into more trouble. And I was out on technically bail is what you're out on when you're when you're not uh, settled or or you haven't gone to trial yet. And so I started owing people a lot of money and it, it was just not a good situation. So the only choice was to run and that's what I did. And my girlfriend and I, same girlfriend, decided to study abroad in Australia, which was the farthest place from home, literally on the map. Plus, of course, Australia still spoke the English language, which was definitely appealing at the time because I didn't really want to have to deal with any of that bullshit, right? Like, I wasn't going to Australia to learn and do anything but run. That wasn't the plan. Luckily, Australia, if you don't know anything about it, pretty much accepts criminals. That's kind of how they were founded. Uh, the UK or some European country shipped all their prisoners over there, and that's how that uh, place was populated, besides the Aborigines, which are really similar to our Native Americans. And so when you fill out the application, it says, hey, have you been in charge of any felonies? And the answer is yes. And fortunately, Australia didn't give a shit, and they let me in. And uh, so six weeks later, boom, we, 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 we went to Australia. And I was such a mess at this time, you know, fully dependent on opiates, uh, spending money I didn't have, you know, selling stuff for money, uh, manipulating ways to get money from my mother. And so my girlfriend helped me out with that. And, and I don't think I would have actually been able to do it without her, even though it really wasn't that difficult of a process to fill out the fucking applications. We decided to go to separate universities. At this point, I had been a full-fledged piece of shit in that relationship, and it just was for the best. You know, I could tell you that I went to Australia University because it was accredited, which is true, and hers wasn't, so I didn't want to attend that university. But I think the main thing was is I just knew that wherever I was going was the wrong way to go. And so I don't know why exactly we ended up at separate universities, but I can tell you that it was for the best. And it gave us enough time apart to eventually, not right away, but eventually go ahead and go our separate ways, which was necessary for both parties. On the way to Australia, you know, I knew what I was getting into, right? And, and I was looking to clean up my life, and, and I just figured that a geographical locational change was going to do that. And so you get on the plane, 
And you know that you're going to get sick because if you're addicted to prescription medications and opiates, that's what happens. And so the plane ride's about 13 hours. I didn't sleep one single second pacing around a plane in the middle of the night looking at everybody all peaceful. And it starts to get real fucking depressing. And then I got there and everyone's excited and I'm over here just trying to make it through the next hour. And I knew that this was coming, so I had mentally prepared. But once you're that far away, reality starts to set in. And, you know, fortunately, financial insecurity wasn't a concern at this point because I still had, I still had the money printer, right, which was my mother. And it, so that gave me enough comfort to survive all of this. I was still in pretty rough shape, though. We uh, were a bunch of Americans from all over the country, ended up in Brisbane and, and did a Great Barrier Reef tour. You know, the problem was is I was still in really rough shape. And I, I tried to go scuba diving, couldn't figure it out, sank to the bottom. My nose started bleeding. You know, it was a disaster. I got off the ship, basically isolated. And, 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 and then a couple of weeks later... I started to be okay again, and I met some people and began to adapt and survive like I always had. And of course, being in a new environment, perception is reality. I could be whoever the hell I wanted to. And it wasn't like I manipulated everything about me, but there's subtleties that actually do matter because you're kind of lying to yourself by lying to other people, and those, those, those lies become your own reality. However, looking back at it, Australia was one of the best experiences of my life because going to another place that far away by yourself with really nobody that you know forces you to survive. And public transportation, driving on the opposite side of the road, uh, going to a university curriculum that's different than what you're used to, and also like being sober, like I was sober for a little while, and it, it was an awesome experience. You can't, you couldn't replace it. Had I done it differently, I definitely would have went to another country that spoke a different language because now I have the mindset of actually learning knowledge, skills, and habits so I can adapt, survive, thrive better. But that wasn't the intention of going to this place, but there was still a ton of benefits. And so I came home and transferred to the University of St. Thomas, which I mentioned earlier that I couldn't get into. But I didn't really have another option. You know, without getting into too much graphic details, there was nothing for me at St. Cloud. You know, my relationship uh, was dead. My girlfriend still went there. A lot of her friends and our friends were there. A lot of the bad people that I became acquaintances with, a.k.a. friends, whatever you want to refer to them as, were all still in St. Cloud. And I had already been down that road when I got out of treatment, tried to go back there. There was nothing left for me there. What I didn't realize is the cost of that decision because the transfer process from a public or a, or a state-run university to a private university that had an emphasis on you know, philosophy, language arts, um, and theology, I had to basically throw away 36 credits 
which is an entire year of school. And I got back there, joined a co-ed business fraternity. It seemed like a good option. I didn't really understand what the hell a co-ed fraternity even was, but St. Thomas was way different than St. Cloud and some other universities, right? You didn't live together. There was no frat houses. And it seemed like everybody had their shit together and there were some good people to gravitate towards. So I did that. I did the interview process. You know, you do mock interviews. It's, it's structured like a panel interview. It's actually pretty intimidating. You know, you buy nice clothes to fit the, fit the, what you think is supposed to be the way you're supposed to dress. And you answer the questions that you practice for. And so I did it, got in there and, and, uh, did really well for a time. Right. And Unfortunately, there I was again with the same characteristics, same tendency to do the same shit because I was just not looking at my behaviors and I didn't know what I was doing at the time. It was just it was just what I did. So I ended up getting a DUI and I had a sober driver. It wasn't like I needed to drive, but alcohol was involved, of course. And I was just emotionally immature and got angry over a relationship that was already dead. It was over. I just couldn't accept it. And, and that's a testament to the fact that I did not accept things in general, right? Like I thought that you could put money at it and just apply force and, and, and then just get your way because that's really what had happened in all of my past experiences. And so I could no longer drive to school anymore. So my dad happened to live in St. Paul within biking and walking distance to campus. And so I moved there while I didn't have a license. And it wasn't really something I wanted to do. You know, I grew up with a shit ton of luxuries living with my mother and I uh, those luxuries really weren't available living with my dad. And it wasn't like I didn't love my dad or nothing. It was just like I liked the fucking luxury life. Like, it was, duh. Um, but, but I had to do what I had to do, right? It was, it, was, it, was, it was just some more fucking hoops I had to jump through. And I was like, fuck, I did it to myself again. But, you know, what else is new? So I played the game. I ended up getting a limited license, which, you know, you just write a bunch of hours on there and you carry it with you. And it was all bullshit because I just fucking used it to do whatever I wanted to. And this wasn't the first time I got my license suspended, by the way. So it wasn't the first time I knew how to run this game. And of course, you got a lawyer. You got to get a lawyer when you get a DUI, at least if you have the money for it. And so I got the charges reduced to uh, a careless driving what I didn't really realize at the time was that the cost of insurance for a careless driving is literally equivalent to a DUI. So although there is some, some benefit to not having a DUI on your record, the financial cost is, is actually very, very similar. I still had to go through all the same bullshit in court and, and everything else. And, and none of those costs added up because I wasn't the one footing the bill. And as this was happening, I began to realize the amount of money I was spending on my habits, on my lifestyle, and on my school, and how long it was taking me. 
like I said, I transferred from St. Cloud to St. Thomas, realized 36 credits were basically worthless. They were just dumped as electives. And I'm on like year three and I got like fucking three more to go. And I'm just like, geez, man, I already graduated high school at 19 years old. I'm already like moving slower just because I was held back in first grade. And none of this stuff was really making any sense to me. Although it was finally starting to make some sense because at this point I had fucked off so much that the whole my mom's going to pay for school was out the window. I was applying for financial aid, taking out the maximum, spending that money on habits, lifestyle, and piss poor decisions. And so, you know, I ended up on the same path, still addicted to the same things. And, and those things cost a lot of money. Uh, I don't exactly know the totals on a daily basis, but it's hundreds of dollars a day. And so, you know, a lot of my student loan financing, uh, financial aid, unfortunately, went to that. And then, of course, that wasn't enough. So you got to sell stuff. And of course, that wasn't enough. So you got to manipulate ways to get money from uh, the money printer, which is my mother. And, and ultimately, that eventually still became not enough. And so I started to realize, like, shit, dude, you sort of have some problems that are that are that are looking like I'm not going to have solutions for. But I was so close to the finish line, you know, I, I was again fully, you know, dependent on, on prescription pills, but you just put one foot in front of the other and you go through the vicious cycle every day, you know, which is literally getting up, getting well, and then going to school and then doing your homework while you have enough prescriptions to get it done before you, before you need to get well again. And when you're in that mindset, I can't explain it to you, but you literally, or I literally thought that magically one day it was just going to fix itself. Kind of like I thought going to Australia was going to fix it. The confusing part about it was that it actually going to Australia and doing a lot of those things did fix a lot of stuff for quite a while. And so that gave me the illusion that I could solve these things by myself and going to different places and relocating and starting over. But like I said earlier, it, it was me. I was the fucking problem, and I didn't realize that. So end of your college career, on autopilot, just scraping by. I didn't network. I didn't do job interviews. I was interning at a place, and I, and I did a really good job at the start. The problem was is that it got out of hand with my with my uh, addiction, and I didn't finish that very well. And I was not offered uh, not offered a job to stay. And so I graduated. And you know what other options do you got? So I just went ahead and began working for my mother as an assistant. Well, go figure. But now I'm sitting here thinking damn, dude, like, what the fuck did I go to college for, right? Like, I didn't need to do that to go do this. It's still very nice to have a degree from St. Thomas, and, and, and those certificates basically are actually important, and they were probably more important 10 years ago than they are now. But I just, like, figured I would use it whenever I got my shit together, and it was nice that I had it, so yay. But I hadn't started paying back all the student debt I had accumulated. And you're talking about almost six figures. You know, I went to Australia, took out loans for that, 
you know, had the time of my life, learned a lot over there. Um, but now it was time to start paying back the dues that I had piled up. And I was not bad at my job. I just wasn't mentally present at my job or physically present at my job all that much because I had something else that was basically at that point running my life. And you, you're going to fast forward through this, some of the, some of the turmoil because there's only so much detail that is really necessary on that. You know, maybe someday in the future I'll get into some of this because it was, it was fucking wild and it was bad and it was hard to even talk about for a long time. Um, so I was arrested in North Minneapolis and, uh, pretty much not the side of Minneapolis that you really want to be on uh, unless you have a specific purpose for being there, which is, which is maybe for a job, not the reasons I was there. It was April 11, 2013, which wasn't the first time I was arrested down there for the exact same thing. It was actually just the first time I couldn't figure out a way out of it. And so I had gotten pretty good with my words to get me out of things. You know, that was a skill that I learned along the way and I can't describe it for you, but you know, ultimately it, it, it's salesmanship and it was just salesmanship from a survival standpoint, not selling a product by any means, but selling to get out of things, to, to, to manipulate the reality so I could get the fuck out of trouble. So I called my dad as I couldn't make the phone call to my mother. You know, the, the, the police were pretty insistent that I call a family member. Friends weren't on the list. And the reason why I couldn't call my mother is because at this point, I just had disappointed her for fucking years now. And I just knew the disappointment on in her voice, and I didn't want to deal with that. So I called my dad, who has previous experience in a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about, and you know that's arguably why he wasn't around, and it didn't work out with my mom, and a bunch of other shit. But it made it a lot easier to make that phone call. But what I didn't realize is my dad was actually going to take care of all the shit that was necessary to take care of, which was to kill every option I had besides the only one I didn't want to do. And what that meant was it was he had taken care of my mother and convinced her that it was time to put me on the streets and let whatever happened happen. And that was something that my mother wasn't willing to do up until this point. And of course, I understand why, right? You're trying to protect your kid from the day that they're born. And sometimes, you know, when you do that at a young age, it creates a false sense of reality, an artificial reality. And it certainly did for me. And the only way to stop that is to stop the enabling. And so I didn't have any finances anymore. I didn't have a place to live or stay, at least not with family. And at this point, I, I was so fucked up that I didn't have a lot of friends. Even the friends I did have, it was a bad idea to stay with them, even if it was a possibility. So I could have ran. 
I had about $1,600 to my name, and that was a ton of money, man. I just got paid that day that I got arrested, so I didn't have a chance to spend it. Otherwise, it probably would have been damn near gone. But when you're in this mindset, you know, tomorrow is never really a thought. There's That, that was plenty of money to go ahead and, and, and disappear for however long it was going to uh, enable that. But for some reason, this time, I just was done fighting the fight that I knew I couldn't win. I did sit in jail long enough to have a moment of clarity. And someone once told me that pain induces change. This wasn't until years later. But looking back at it, I had enough pain that I, like, really wanted to change for the first time ever. And this had been going on for months and months and months. It's just that I needed something, you know, call it a blessing from upstairs, which didn't look like one at the time, but I needed, I needed to hit a wall. And, and that was just simply the wall was being, being arrested and the options running out and no other options, at least not one that I wanted to entertain. And so that led me into all the things that I knew were the solutions, but I really just thought I would be able to figure out a different way. But my dad took care of what couldn't be taken care of previously, and I'm glad I made that phone call in that particular way. That was, that was the way it was meant to be. So I went to detox, and that was an experience in itself because when I got there, you know, they, they pretty much pushed withdrawal medication on me and if you don't know what that is, uh, going into treatment when you're addicted to opiates is really scary because you're, you're so scared of, of coming off of them because it's so painful and, and it's so miserable that you think you're going to die. Literally, you think you're going to die. The unfortunate fact is you're not going to die. And that seems weird to say, but... Uh, you're just not. Opiates are not something that you're going to die from withdrawals. Alcohol and benzos are actually the only things due to seizures. Um, it's probably why they made liquor stores essential during this time of, of what we're going through in America with COVID-19. I refused the medication because at this point, I had already tried that medication on the streets and it just simply didn't work. And I knew all about it. I knew how you felt on it and everything else. Well, denying that medication led the MD to basically have a conversation with me and say, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. And that was confusing to me because I thought this was a place where you were supposed to get clean. And that leads down the rabbit hole of another conversation with our healthcare system, our prescription system and things like that. But I stuck to my guns and I was like, no, dude, like I did not come here to be dependent on, on, on something. I came here to fucking not be dependent on everything. Um, and for, for whatever reason that MD must've had a conversation with somebody higher up and talked to me and said, you know what, we're, we are going to let you stay. And of course it's a small world. So ironically, I knew people in detox from my previous life and it was one of those times where normally that should have made me comfortable, but the people that I ran into there and the way their mind was communicating through their words to me, it was like, shit, man, 
I need to get out of this life. I need to get away from these people because they are not talking and making sense to, to better themselves. Like it's hard to explain, but who you are is a big part of, I'm sorry, who you are surround yourself with is a big part of life. And that was something that was really difficult to give up when I was younger was, was my friends that I thought were my friends that made me comfortable. But that was the first realization that dude, these guys are doing the same shit that I used to do. They're going to fucking go back out and do the same exact shit. And I need to fucking stay as far away from them as possible. And that was intuitive to me within a couple of days. I mean, and it was a big wake up call. It was like a big moment of, oh shit, I now realize the amount of change that I'm going to actually have to make. Which of course, everybody been telling me for years, I just didn't want to accept it. And so I was able to find a bed. Uh, my dad was able to find a bed. And, it, you know, at this point, I was still looking to get out of this. So I almost had convinced everybody that I was just going to do outpatient treatment, go back to work, start making money, dig myself out of this hole because I had a big fucking hole to dig out of. And once again, somehow, some way, when it really came down to it, those options were not on the table. I could not manipulate my way out of it. I was free though. And I was sitting in my parents' living room and I was still about to run. And for some reason, once again, I don't know what happened, but I just like didn't have it in me. And so I'm like, all right, let's go. And I didn't know anything about this place, but it was in YZ. And, and of course you think YZ and you're like, man, this guy went to a, like a luxury treatment facility, this and that. And it actually wasn't. It was uh, the cheapest treatment facility that I still know to this day. And I had already been to Hazleton Youth Facility, and that was uh, that was a miniature vacation. And so that one was definitely bullshit, nor was I mentally ready to do anything because I was not going there for the right reasons. I was going there to manipulate the system and get out of trouble. And so this facility was good. Um, and then it led me into the next thing that I did not want to do. But again, for some reason, I just didn't have no fight left in me. And so that led me to the sober house in St. Paul. And if you don't know what a sober house is and you don't know what a treatment facility is, this particular treatment facility was not a clinical, meaning it was not medical based. There was no MDs on staff except for one because of compliance issues. The rest of it was just ran on volunteers. And that was cool because I'm like, hey, like these people are the same as me. They're not looking down on me. And finally, I started to listen. And a sober house, unlike a halfway house, is, hey, you live here with a bunch of sober people. You have one house meeting a week. You do chores. You learn fundamentals. You learn how to live with people and, and, and get into AA. And, and it's a safe place. And so I needed that because I didn't know how to do fucking anything. At this point, I was relearning how to do everything. I didn't know how to do anything without substances. And, and, and 
like, like my brain like did not work. I had to relearn how to work. Fortunately, I still had a job mostly because my mother employed me. Actually, let's be honest. All, all of that is because my mother employed me. And then I started to come out of the clouds, right? You start to get a clear head and you start to look at the pieces that I'm having to pick up. And, and the only way to do that is look in the mirror. And that was something I was able to avoid doing for a long, long, long time. And, you know, during this time, you know, you go through whatever avenue is necessary to get better. For me, it was just it was just AA and it was working with a sponsor and it gave me the courage to be honest with somebody about everything that I lied about in my past. And that's how you actually look in the mirror or how I looked in the mirror and then began to look at the pieces and the destruction and the consequences for others of my actions. And that was like the turning point of making progress. And so when that happened, you know, not immediately, but I began to connect the dots that knowledge, skills, and habits were the separator of success because they enhance the ability to adapt, survive, and truly th thrive. Not the perception of thriving, which was what I was able to obtain, which was the perception of thriving for years. You know, little did I know that the cat was already out of the bag to everybody that came in contact with. I was living in such la-la land that I thought all my lies were being believed, but truthfully, in the very end, it was total bullshit. Um, however, even to this day, I see success defined by the perception of oneself to others, often with the rankings being based on money and status. And often that perception is really just an illusion. And that is something that I was able to do successfully at a high level for a long, long time. And so that's the story of the chaos that led me to where I started my first business living inside the sober house. We've come to the end of this podcast. So tune into the first episode to see what the next phase of Maddie B looks like. And to reveal the surprise, believe it or not, I'm not here to convince anybody. This is just the way I see it through my experiences. Is the other child in this story is America. Peter Schiff once said, printing money to the government and Wall Street is what giving money to a drug addict is. And I've only been around for 33 years. And so in 2008, the above statement was true, and it's still true today. However, I didn't realize it then because I was not capable. But I believe that it's also true for the child known as America. And if you study history, which I'm a fan of now, is this has been going on for far longer than just the 2008 situation. And how do I know this to be true? Well, in my opinion, it's pretty simple. Take a look at these statistics once. It's going to give you a comparison between 1990 and 2019. 
Four year college tuition average cost in 1990 was $30,408. 40 years later, 39 years later, it's $102,480, which is a 300% increase. The average home price or cost of rent, because they correlate the same in this time period, is, was 101000 in 1990 and 294000 in, in 2019. Again, a 300% increase. A gallon of gas back in 1990 was $1.12. In 2019, it's $2.50. So please ignore the fact, if you're watching this video uh, in May 2020, that gas prices are low because that's an entirely different conversation. The cost of raising a child... From 0 to 18 years old, in 1990, was $120,150. 2019, the average cost of raising a child is $252,000. That's a two-times increase. Gas prices are also a two-times increase. The average price of a new car in 1990 was $9,432. $9, in 2019, it is $37,577. Now, here's where it doesn't add up because the inflationary costs of those things are fine as long as the median income increases by the same percentage or relatively close. The next statistic that I'm going to show or describe is, is the problem and the the reason is, is because in 1990, the median income of the United States was $52,689. In 2019, it's $59,039. Now, I can't do the math on this in my head, but you can see that that's not enough of an increase to make this math make sense. The reason why I'm outlining this comparison is because it's the same fucking story as mine. The child known as America just finances their artificial reality differently. I am the, ch I am the child America, and the Federal Reserve and monetary policy is my mother in this story. Both parents enable their children to live beyond their means and allow them to, to, to defer the consequences of their chaotic and self-destructive decisions until there are only two options left. Now, the Federal Reserve and monetary policy might have a lot more tricks up their sleeve than I did, but based on my experience, they're the same. The end result is the same. It's just a matter of how long you could run the game. So a lot of people say, I bought a new car. Words are important. I didn't realize this till later in life, but they are important. And I'm not saying you need to change your language. I'm just saying you need to understand that sometimes the way you phrase things might not be true and accurate. As long as you know that in the back of your head, though, I think it's okay. So how many people that say they bought that new car really bought a new car versus how many people financed it? Because remember, 9000 to 37000 that's the difference of 1990 to 2019 for new cars. 
But this illustrates the perception of thriving I mentioned previously relative to actually thriving because you need to know somebody's full story to actually know what's going on. And yes, there is blame to be placed on the parents in this story, both my mother and our government and our banking system and the way we are able to manipulate financing things. You know, check this out, right? This phone, phones weren't on here, but the cost of a phone has gotten significantly more expensive over the years. But somehow, no matter how much money somebody makes, and keep in mind, I had a ton of advantages. Not going to even say anything at all about that. I, I, I had a stupid amount of advantages. But the reason why it's the same story is because no matter how much money somebody makes, you see the same people have these same products that cost the same amount of money. Whether it be a new phone, $1,200 I think this thing costs, or a car, or school, or rental costs, or the cost of raising a child, everybody is still somehow able to obtain a lot of the same things that don't match how much money they make. And so, yeah, sure, there's blame to be placed on the parents of this story. But my, I'm here to tell you from my experience that if you want to go ahead and point the finger at that, it's not going to do you any fucking good. The market doesn't give a shit, and that's where the real opportunities in the world are. And student loans are one of the only ones on that list that you really can't get out of, but that doesn't change the fact that you're going to have to deal with those financial consequences at some point. And unfortunately, those financial consequences might just lead into life consequences, relationship consequences, and all the turmoil and fucked up bullshit that I had to deal with because of my actions. And mine are far more drastic, far more graphic and different, but they're, they're really the same. Artificial reality is still true in both comparisons. So if you took this as I'm talking about everybody in America, I just want to tell you that I'm not because this is just a generalized comparison. I'm not here to convince anybody anything, just how I see it. I've never regretted anything that I've done after I uh, got my head on straight because the sum total of my experiences in life have served me very well. And the sum total of experiences just means all of your experiences in totality make you who you are, give you the skills, give you the, give you the knowledge, and then either give you good habits or shitty habits, right? And, and unlearning shitty habits is, is, is really hard to do, especially if you have an addicted personality that led you to be dependent on mood-altering substances. You know, that change is, is, is yeah, you got to change everything. I think a lot of people's roads in the American comparison are, are, are far different, but it's still the same thing, man. You got to make sacrifices in order to get where you want to be. Otherwise, magically, it's not going to happen. You're not going to end up where you want to be, in my, my opinion. And you know what it really all boils down to 
is to the acquisition of knowledge, skills, and habits to adapt, survive, and thrive as efficiently as possible. Because unlike previous generations, speed wins in today's market. And technology is our competitor to a certain extent. However, we still use it to be more productive as individuals. But it's changing so fast that the acquiring knowledge and skills in those departments is a never-ending process. And you have to be able to do it fast as fuck now. And speed comes with practice and discipline of knowledge and skills. And habits are something that you got to work on, in my opinion, for, for the rest of your life because you can easily digress on those. I wish everyone well. Until next time. And this podcast is dedicated to a friend of mine that is no longer with us, Nick Earhart. Still thinking about you, and I uh, love you, buddy.